Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Heather Cox Richardson is a noted historian, a professor of history at Boston College, specializing on the Civil War and Reconstruction, but in the past year, she's taken on a different role, chronicling America's daily political life in a series of commentaries titled Letters from an American, which can be found on her Facebook page as well as on heathercoxrichardson.substack.com. Earlier this year, she released a book titled How the South Won the Civil War, subtitled Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. I spoke with Heather Cox Richardson via Zencaster on the morning of Friday, September 11th, 2020, about her book, her commentaries, and her work and life as a historian, and of course about current events. I turned on the recording before the official interview began. That interview starts at the seven-minute mark and discussion of the contents of the book at around the 21-minute mark. When I pressed the record button, we were talking about how the letters from an American could be compiled. I realized that with the one-year anniversary coming up, I've written on average a thousand words now for 365 days. That's essentially five to six volumes. This is a book, but now it sounds like multiple books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it will never become a book. People always say, Don't, you know, aren't you going to publish it? And I will self-publish it just so that, they, you know, for a few people, just so that it exists. But let's be honest, nobody wants to read six volumes on the minutia of the last year. I sure don't. <laughs> so, so I don't think that's ever going to happen. But, you know, maybe, maybe someday we'll do the highlights. What I was thinking about how I would do it would be to take the highlights and then kind of annotate them right below the day. So, you know, you'd have your day, and then after that, the ones where you weren't repetitious, you would say, well, okay, this is what happened afterward, blah, 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 something like that. Oh, that's interesting. I actually do have a plan. There is a book on the way, and it does something not unlike that. It just takes a, a, a much broader view of what happened and why we care and where we are going from here. But there will be, I will incorporate, you know, sometimes there's a lot of stuff that isn't great in those because I'm writing them in the middle of the night and I'm tired and there's so much to talk about or whatever. But, you know, every once in a while they sing and those would be worth preserving. What I find myself doing sometimes is reading them two or three times just to pick up the import of exactly what has happened that particular day. But it also reminds me of the fact that sometimes, and it's weird, Sometimes I'll recall a major event that happened four days earlier, and it now seems as if it's gone in the, in the sense that, like, here we are on Friday, September 11th, and last weekend's soldiers being losers seems to have disappeared into the haze. 
Isn't it astonishing? And that's a great example because that was less than a week ago. And since then, we've had stuff from the Cohen book, We've had, which when, when he talked about the fact that Jerry Falwell Jr. endorsed Donald Trump because he was blackmailed into it with... Um, with recent photographs. We've had the Woodward book dropping with its all of its information about the fact that the president knew about the the devastating effects of the coronavirus way back in January and then basically lied about it since then. We've had the whistleblower complaint from DHS that says they're cooking the intelligence books to go ahead and make sure that our intelligence appears to reflect what the president is saying in his reelection campaign. And and that's and then then you know the West Coast is on fire. You know, which, you know, any one of those stories would be an administration defining story for any normal administration. It would last for four years. And instead, we've had them all in one week. It's no wonder we're all exhausted. You know, after this, I have to uh, walk my dog and the sky is yellow and and I'm right next to Berkeley and the sky is yellow outside. Yesterday was horrible and the dog was even coughing. Yeah, I was going to ask, how are the animals taking all this? I don't know. He's starting to act very strange. He's sleeping a lot more right now. For me, on Wednesday, there was no day. Because it never got light. I woke up and I looked through the skylight of my bedroom and it was 9.30 and it was dark. That's a very eerie feeling. Uh, All day, that day it was dark. I went to Trader Joe's at four in the afternoon and it was like I'd gone, you know, at seven or eight o'clock and the sky was red. Did you see Rebecca Solnit's piece on the, the, how the colors changed across the course of the day? She's such a brilliant writer anyway, but it, you know, the traveling through time according to color was again, her usual brilliance, but um, uh, it, it just really hit home Everything around us feels otherworldly at this point. Apocalyptic, almost. We should get started on the official interview, though I've been recording for about five minutes now. That'd be fine. Do you want to give me a little bit of a heads up about any kind of an arc you want to establish? Yesterday, I wrote two pages of notes, and I have no idea what I'm going to be doing. That's part of the shape of the moment we're in. You know, I keep telling people at this point, I'm like the goldfish, that every trip around the bowl is brand new because no one has any any attention span or memory at all. You know, normally, along with nonfiction, I interview fiction writers. It's impossible for me to get more than three or four pages into anything before I have to stop. And this has been going on since March. Yeah, no, I'm exactly the same way. And I was talking to a reporter the other day who said he feels like a tweaker because he can't focus on anything for any amount of time. And I'm like, I'm so right there with you. It's, you know, it's very hard for me to remember how to do anything, anything, even the most basic tasks. Yeah. I mean, you know, you start thinking, do I have the uh, temporal lobe dementia of Trump or not? I mean. Well, it's funny you say that because I, I was actually having this discussion yesterday with my 22-year-old daughter, and I said, I don't think it's dementia. And she said, well, I don't think it is either because I have it as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it, we've entered something. And on one level, it began in 2016, and on another level, it began in March. Why do you say March? Mind you, I don't remember March at this point. But oh, <laughs> oh, March 10th, March 12th for us, is when California shut down. Oh, right, right. 
So, you know, anything that happened in February feels like five years ago, for me at least. Yeah, it's funny. We were looking at photographs last night as well from January. And remember what it used to be like to spend time with people and not be afraid of that? You look at family photographs in restaurants and you're like, those people were so irresponsible. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, that was us and it was fine. But that was only six months ago. So let me start. Welcome to Book Waves. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Heather Cox Richardson, whose latest book is How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of history at Boston College, author of five previous works, and most notably from September 15th, it became one year of daily letters from an American, which is on Facebook, and it's also on your own uh, website. Is that correct? It's actually published on Substack. Before we get into the topic of the book, when you began this, what were your thoughts and how did you view your daily update, when did you realize that it was something not quite what you expected? It's a great question. And and I think it says a lot about the letters themselves of how they started. I did not start these letters at all, really. I had a a Facebook page, a professional Facebook page that had about 22,000 followers. And I wrote an essay about once a week on it about something, you know, I I love to write. So I wrote about something, but I often discussed um, questions of, of history and of modern politics. And what happened was that on September 13th, Friday, September 13th, and I read the news, I'm a total news junkie. I saw that Adam Schiff had written a letter to the acting director of national intelligence at the time, uh, telling him that, that Schiff knew that he was withholding a whistleblower complaint and that because he was holding the whistleblower complaint, contrary to what the law required he do, that there was no con- conclusion that Adam Schiff, who's the, the chair of the um, House Intelligence Committee, could make other than the idea that he was protecting somebody quite high up in the administration and he'd better hand that that letter over in a hurry. And I saw that in, on the 13th and I recognized that was a really big deal because it was a member of the legislative branch calling out a specific member of the executive branch for breaking a law. That's different than like the emoluments clause in the constitution that people have been all over or whatever. This was a specific law, but I was moving at the time. I had just started the new semester. You know, my life was crazy and I reacted to it personally, but I didn't do much with it. And then on the 15th, in the process of moving, I was painting the outside of my house and I got stung by a yellow jacket and I'm allergic to them. And of course I did not have my EpiPen. And I live in the country, way out in the country, a long way from really medical care and stuff. And so I I knew I basically had to observe the sting and see how I was going to react to it. And I had nothing to do. And I was, of course, anxious. So I thought, well, you know, I haven't written on my Facebook page in a while. I'll go ahead and, and, and catch them up to date on what's been going on. So I wrote a post on the 15th. It was a Sunday. And people like poured in with all kinds of questions. And I, I did, didn't like to put things on that more than once a week because I thought people would get bored that I'd be taking up too much space. But I thought, well, you know, I guess I'll go ahead and answer their questions. So I wrote again, and then more and more questions poured in. And it was pretty clear that something big was going on. I think it was probably a matter of a month or so later that I, I wrote to my 
uh, university dean and said, just so you know, something big is happening and I, I just need to make sure it's on your radar screen. So I knew pretty early on that it was hitting uh, a chord. To this day, I don't understand why, but I'm glad it is and I'm glad that I, you know, that I seem to be helping people make it through this moment. What does it feel like suddenly to become this kind of strange kind of celebrity? Well, what's funny about it is that my life really hasn't changed that much at all. I'm a writer and and I sit at a computer and I write. I do research and I write. And it doesn't matter if I'm writing to one person or to a million people. My computer looks the same. My study looks the same. The glass of seltzer water I have beside me looks the same. So from my perspective, I'm exactly the same person I was a year ago before all this started. But I will say something that I think is really important about the tone of the letters is that when the numbers started to get into crazy numbers, I made it a point to not to think about that. When I write those letters, I am literally envisioning a few of my close friends and family so that it doesn't ever get, you know, if if you read me in, in major papers, there's a very different voice. And I work very hard to make sure I don't adopt that voice, that I'm speaking to my friends, not to some larger societal, you know, body. And I think that really matters a a lot in the way that the letters have been. From the perspective of someone who talks to a lot of fiction writers, in order to get your point across, you have to make it as personal as possible. And somehow that personalness informs us in a way that if we try to generalize, talk to a lot of people as if we're doing this speech, doesn't work. So the fact that I feel you're talking to me specifically in a way, it makes it more effective and it makes it more readable. And I would say something larger than that, and that that is the stuff that I try and do is really almost to model democracy. I mean, somehow our government seems so distant to so many of us, and it's not distant, it's us. And to sort of say, you know, this matters to me because it impacts my life in this way, or because I am personally offended by this. There was one letter early on, I don't remember now even what the topic was, but I said, you know, I know I'm talking about this in a really callous way and what might seem like a cold way, but that's because I wrote a book about this and it still hits very, very hard. And so we're on really tender ground for me right now. And I think that that made it seem more real to people because it wasn't just some national story that see, that you saw in the New York Times or in you know the Portland Press Herald. It was somebody saying, you know, I'm having a hard time going about my day to day because this is really knocking the the ground out from underneath my feet. I want to talk briefly about events that you wrote about last night on September 10th. Um, <laughs> Now, I've only gotten three hours of sleep the night before because the night before was one of the most important ones I'd ever written. So last night was a bit of a rush, but go ahead. You talked about that Fauci was told to lie by his superiors, which brings up the question for me is that should we even trust him at this point? If you read on in that article, now, one of the things I always do, of course, is I cite my sources. You know, so many people seem to think I have some inside track to something. I don't at all. I simply read a lot and I read very quickly. So everything that I write has a source. And I don't cite my historical sources because they're profoundly informed by 30 years of work. And then there would be far more source citations than there would be um, text. But anything I write about the present 
has a source. And in that article that that was sourced from, and I'm afraid I really don't remember it that well because I was so tired last night, but um, there was a a memo, a a series of memos, emails that were in in some fashion, and I'm not going to say how, because again, the article's not in front of me, got into the hands of a, a media outlet and they, reading them, saw that this aide had repeatedly put pressure on Dr. Fauci not to talk about, for example, um, the need for children to wear masks in schools because this person insisted that children could not spread the virus. We know that's wrong, right? But then if you went further down in the article, that article that I'm citing, Fauci said, I have never been, I've never altered what I was going to say based on any kind of external pressure. And I think if you know Dr. Fauci's work, he began working with uh, on the AIDS crisis under Ronald Reagan, and he has worked with every president since. He has a sterling reputation for telling the truth. And, you know, I think that's a little, you have to be a little bit careful. Somebody could tell him to censor what he says. That doesn't mean that he's going to do it. Now, he does tend to try and get along with people, so maybe he doesn't speak quite as forcefully as he might personally want to. But, you know, he does seem to me like somebody who is trustworthy. But one of the things that I think is important about this moment is actually the theme of what I was writing about last night, and that is that knowledge is power. You know, being able to control what people know and how they know it has always been the key to retaining political power or societal power in a, in, a, in a community. And one of the things that it's important for people to do, I think, is to think about where they get their sources of information and whether or not they can trust those sources of information. So wondering about Fauci is not a bad idea. Now, if we get a document dropped today that says that Fauci has been um, you know, secretly taking money from the Martians, I deliberately put that way out there because I, I, again, I try and be careful about somebody hearing me say something and saying, oh, she said, you know, I I hope you understand, but I don't really think Dr. Anthony Fauci is funded by Martians. But if you hear that, then you've got to adjust what you think about his information. And similarly, you know, you've seen this again and again, when, for example, last night, there have always been rumors about this Ukrainian oligarch who was feeding information to Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and to Ron Johnson, who's at the head of the Senate um, Homeland Security Committee and theoretically doing this investigation into the the connection between the um, 2016 Trump campaign and um, and Russian operatives. Um, the the fact that the, the the Treasury Department, which is in the executive branch and is headed by Steven Mnuchin, who is a, a staunch Trump supporter, the fact that they have now said that he is a Russian operative, that is, he is a Russian spy. Well, should you take what he says seriously? As, as an actual fact, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say no, not unless you're eager to believe the information being fed to us by a foreign power that's eager to, to disrupt our society. So that's a case where you should look at the stuff that's coming out of Rudy Giuliani and out of Ron Johnson and out of Devin Nunes, to whom he has also provided information uh, of California, and say, now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I've got a second source, a second solid source before I believe anything they say. Again, before we go on to uh, how the South won the Civil War, Heather Cox Richardson, the day before was when the uh, first information from the Woodward books dropped that Trump lied about the virus. And I keep thinking, you know, you spoke to my colleague Mitch Jezerich, KPFA, a couple of months ago, and the world was different 
And so much has happened since, yet at the same time, if we look at whose people support, it feels like nothing's changed. When looking at it from the perspective of a historian, what are you seeing? Well, of course, that's a conversation that could literally take years. But one of the things that I think has gotten us to the position we're in is, as I say, access to information. And and I really want to emphasize that because if you think about being able to make good choices about your life, you need to have access to good information. So, for example, you know, you might love your business partner, but if you discover that your business partner has always been sweet and kind to your face, but at the same time he's been cleaning out the bank accounts, you need to know that he's cleaning out the bank accounts so you can make good decisions about whether or not you're going to continue to work with that person. So having accurate information about your life, about things that matter to you in your life, is actually foundational to being able to have control over your life. And one of the things that has happened um, in in American politics especially since at least the 1990s is the rise of a media channel or a media uh, world in which there is a real divorce between reality, what's actually happening, and what what people are saying and what voters have come to believe. And I, when I look at the solid numbers for Trump and this, many Trump supporters I know, they are simply bound into a, a worldview that is not based in reality. It's based in a narrative that they have been told. And that's not to say this, I'm not suggesting the whole concept of uh, people believing in a, um, having a false consciousness and, or I'm sorry, voting against their, against their best interests because they're locked into a false consciousness, but rather that, you know, we make sense of the world by our beliefs. You know, we tell stories about ourselves to, to figure out who we are. You know, you tell a story about your life. Uh, I tell a story about my life and how we see we fit into the world. But countries also tell stories about their lives. And we have the problem right now of a number of people who believe in a story that is not grounded in reality. And people ask me all the time, you know, how do I reach somebody who insists that no matter what he says, Donald Trump is not going to attack Social Security. And my answer to that is, you know, a lot of those people are not reachable because there is nothing in the world, to my mind, because of the way I think, more powerful than the human mind. And if you can command somebody's mind, you can make them do anything you want them to do. And a lot of those people you know, are not going to be able to be reintegrated into a reality-based community. But that being said... There is no way that uh, there would be so many actors trying to advance disinformation and trying, vying for our minds if they thought they had locked up the future of America. So I look at the numbers that look solid. I look at the fact that in some states it appears that Trump is gaining ground. And I look at the fact that, you know, as again of last night, we discovered once again that Russian operatives are trying to affect the way we think about things in America. And I say... They would not be trying so hard if they thought the game was already won. That's a <laughs> most optimistic view. Uh, let, let's talk a little about your book, How the South Won the Civil War. You have five previous books, all of which deal with similar parts of How the South Won the Civil War. It struck me that this is almost like a compendium, uh, a digest of all of that information. What prompted you to write this particular book? And is that kind of what you were going for? 
That's a very good catch. In fact, it's very different than my previous books because what I'm most known for, I think, is my ability to do research. I love research. I love watching a world come alive around me. I always compare it to the holodeck in Star, Star Trek. You know, you go into a new era and you start to fill in the walls around you. And there is nothing to me more magical than that. It's like I get to create my own movies, if you will. And then once they're all done and, I, and I've filled everything out again, I get to step out of them and enter a new holodeck and start all over again. So I've always been known for my ability to research, but it was funny, you know, I, I'm in my late 50s. And after I finished the last book, I spent a lot of time working on some theoretical material um, that someday I may publish. But there were a bunch of books I wanted to write. And I said to a friend, you know, I, I this is the book I want to write. And, and he said, well, that's good. No one's going to read it. It's boring. And I was like, but I like it. And then I said, well, here's another one. He's like, yeah, maybe. And, you know, we went through a whole bunch of them. And then I said, but you know, there's a little article I want to write first. And it's kind of an article about how really what's going on in the East is this struggle between oligarchy and democracy and that the North really should have won that after the Civil War, but they didn't because everybody moved West. And in the West, it really kind of got a new lease on life. And the guy snapped to attention and he goes, that's a prize winning book. And I went, really? I think it's an article. So then I was talking to my agent. I did the same thing, went through all the books I wanted to write. And she said, yeah, okay. Yeah, me, yeah, me. no, no. The one I loved. No, no one's going to read that. I still love that book. And then I said, but you know, I think I want to write this little article. But somebody told me they thought it was a bigger book than that. And I told her the idea and she went, that's the one I want. But it took me about four years to actually work it out. It's a very complicated book. And what it is intended to do then, and there is some, some important original research in that book, but it really was intended to take a look at what I thought after 30 years of immersing myself in American political history from the beginning until yesterday, what were the patterns I saw and what interested me? And that's the book that came out. And at the end, you say it's dense, it is indeed. It's it's designed in such a way that you're supposed to be able to read each section as an independent essay. So that I hope helps a little bit with the density. But at the end of the day, it was really intended to be, you know, here's what I think about American society at large. You make a connection, and it's a connection I never saw before. And that's between the rise of the right wing in America and the oligarchy and the myth of the individual cowboy in the West. So I'd, I'd like you to make that connection between conservatism today, the slavery battles of the mid 19th century and the intervening moment, the fact that the individual as personified by the cowboy, how those elements connect. To do that, I got to take you back to the Civil War. One of the things that I didn't deal with at all in this book, but I think is kind of an, a fun way to think about America or an important way to think about America is the idea that really the central question to American life until the Civil War was, are we a nation? You know, can we be separated? And the Civil War proved that we could not be separated, but it did not tell us what we were going to become. And it also did not say who was going to have, be able to have a role in the decision about what we were going to become. And one of the things that happens during the Civil War, when the Republican Party holds a majority in, uh, the, in Congress and, of course, holds the White House with Abraham Lincoln, is they do one thing that most people don't realize the Republicans do. Yeah, they're fighting the war. They're bringing people into the um, into the government in huge numbers. They're doing huge amounts of contracting and all that. 
They're spending a lot of money. They're putting forth a lot of different programs like the Homestead Act that puts people on land, like the Land Grant College Act that gives us our state universities, like uh, the railroads that are going to take people across the country. But they also develop our first system of national taxation. It's the Republicans during the Civil War that invent national taxation in America, including the income tax. Now, let's leave that there for a second. The other thing that they're going to do at the end of the war is they are going to end human enslavement except for commission of a crime. But essentially, initially, it looks in 1865 as if they're inviting African-American men, and I'm going to be talking about men here, into the body politic. Now, not as voters initially. The voting is going to come in 1867, and then it's going to be codified in 1868 and 1870. But what they're doing is our government is now going to be big enough and strong enough that it can field this military and it can create uh, colleges and it can charter corporations. It's going to be this very powerful government and it's going to take money out of your pocket to make that happen. And from the beginning, in the North during the Civil War, the Democrats who weren't real, they were war Democrats, but they weren't real keen on Abraham Lincoln and on the Republican agenda. From the beginning, they said, you are crushing the individual. You are creating this, this the behemoth state. They called it an empire, actually, that is going to destroy America. And it's not an accident that when John Wilkes Booth assassinates Abraham Lincoln, he says, six semper tyrannis, which is a line, of course, from Julius Caesar, one of his favorite Shakespearean plays, but also the state motto of Virginia, thus always to tyrants, the idea of somebody who has this government that's going to crush the individual. Okay, I took all that time to set that up because the way this plays out during Reconstruction, if you think about it, very few of us can conjure up in our minds famous African-Americans from the immediate post-war years. There were some, Robert Smalls, of course, and um, the people who went on to sit in, in the Senate, Hiram Rebels, for example. There are certainly labor leaders. But the images we have of African-Americans, famous African-Americans, tend to come from later. Frederick Douglass, who's famous sort of before the war and then a little bit later. But that immediate post-war years, if you think about our images of Reconstruction, what we really remember from the immediate post-Civil War years is the cowboy. The American cowboy was lionized. He really rises in 66, 67, and he's really done for by 86, 87. So he's only operating for about 20 years. And the reality is that uh, American cowboys, about a third of them were men of color. And they had lives that were very similar to the lives of industrial workers back east. They didn't make a lot of money. Their conditions were terrible just terrible. Um, you know, one of the reasons that, that cowboys would sing is because you wanted to know where the other guys on the crew were in case the cattle stampeded because they would stampede right over the cowboys and literally flatten them into the ground. So their working conditions are terrible too, but because of their timing, they get picked up and celebrated primarily by Democrats immediately after the war as the quintessential American. So back east, where the Republican Congress is trying to level the playing field between the the formerly enslaved people and their former enslavers by trying to guarantee equal access to resources, for example, equal access to education, and trying to guarantee that there's going to be a level economic playing field. What happens is the Democrats look at that and they say, this, what we're seeing back east, is socialism. And they use that word socialism. And by 1871, 
communism. And by that, they do not mean 20th century socialism or communism, which is a system of government. They are drawing from an earlier tradition in the case of socialism from the 1840s when they were new sort of utopian communities, especially in the the East. Or they're drawing after March of 1871 from the image of the Paris Commune, where people known as communards or communists took over the city of Paris after the Franco-Prussian War and turned it into a worker-led state, which comes back to America as a vision of workers run amok. And when people, Democrats say, beginning really in about 1870, 1871, letting these poor Black people have a say in American society means they are going to vote to redistribute wealth. They're going to vote for leaders who will give them roads and schools and hospitals, all of which have to be paid for with tax dollars. And by definition, those tax dollars are going to come from white people because they're the ones who own property. Now, that ought to sound really familiar. Then in the West, at the same time, you have the rise of the cowboy and they they lionize the cowboy as the true individualist. You know, the guy who doesn't want anything from the government. Well, that's ridiculous. The cowboys can only survive because of government contracts and because of government protection from the indigenous tribes that are fighting at that point and because of the railroads coming in that move the cattle out and because of government contracts. But the image amongst the Democrats is that a cowboy is an individualist who wants nothing of government and who takes care of his women folk. In the cowboy imagery, there is no image of the people who are building up the West the same way the men are, which is women. I mean, we know you really couldn't survive in the West without a female network. You know, at this point, we know that. But there's this image of the the cowboy as an individualist. So if you take those two tropes coming out of the 1870s, the idea on the one hand that an activist government trying to level the playing field is somehow socialism or communism, and what stands against that is this individualist embodied by the cowboy, You really see that retaking American society in the 1950s after the passage of Brown versus Board of Education of 1954, when the government is once again stepping in to try and level the playing field between white Americans and black Americans. And opponents of that insist that this is a form of communism. And you see this in any number of places, but dramatically you see it in um, a national review, which William F. Buckley Jr. begins to publish. 1955, one of the first things he does is he runs uh, stories about how desegregation is, in fact, an attack on individualism. And you see it in the rise of cowboy imagery on television. There's like 10 Westerns on TV at that time. And increasingly, you see this emphasis on the American cowboy as the American individualist. And that works its way into American politics through Barry Goldwater. In 1964, and of course, one of Goldwater's key supporters is Ronald Reagan, who uses that cowboy imagery really dramatically. And the the Republican Party, as it gets taken over by the extremist wing of the party, by the movement conservatives, increasingly hits on this idea of hyper-individualism, what I've come to call toxic individualism, as being the centerpiece of America, when in fact it was always based on a specific political image that was designed to carry water for what was essentially the reimposition of a racial superstructure on the American South. A name that, that I don't recall seeing in how the South won the Civil War, but that seems to me kind of central to this is Ayn Rand. 
Ayn Rand, by the way, she pronounced it, it, it looks like it should be Ayn, but it was Ayn. Yes, exactly. I mean, that whole idea of what I, I, you know, call in my own mind, the masters of the universe, the idea that really takes off, again, is it a reaction to what became known after World War II as the liberal consensus, this idea shared by Republicans and Democrats both, that the government had a role to play in regulating business and providing a basic social safety net and promoting infrastructure. They push back against that and say, no, if you do that, you're going to crush the individual because regulation is going to mean that people can't run their businesses the way they want. And a social welfare system is going to crush the individual by making, usually it's a him, pay taxes. And Similarly, promoting infrastructure is going to cost tax dollars. That idea that Americans, true Americans, ask for nothing and are able to create something wonderful on their own is, again, an image that you see, I think, gotten stronger and stronger through the years since the 1950s. But now we see it in a really coming to fruition under this administration where you have, again, a real push to end Social Security which many people sit there and say, that's not going to happen. And my response to that is, if you look at it as a historian, if you look at it as the continuation of an ideology, frankly, it's a no-brainer. Now, it's not something I agree to because I don't adhere to that ideology. But people make a mistake when they think that the things that we, most of us in America, believe are good things, um, you know, Social Security, uh, Medicare, I will say, protection of our waters, for example, and our clean air, that they are somehow hampering our individuality. Many of us think that, in fact, they are a statement of community and they're something that we believe are central to our American system. But there is an ideology that say that those things must be worked out by private individuals. And if the government gets involved in that, it is skewing the system in such a way that it no longer permits society to move forward. And, you know, I, I think Ayn Rand fits exactly into that because she's writing out a shrug, for example, while she is accepting public welfare, which is an example, I think, of the divorce between reality and image. And this brings us back to learning, for instance, that the Trump campaign is bankrupt because the grifters have taken all the money. On the one hand, we see theft. But on the other hand, you could make a case that these people are talking about grift as some kind of high point of individualism because they're taking what they can. I think that's exactly right. But but I would even go a step further than that and, again, emphasize that there is an ideology here. And it's an ideology I think was on display this week, both in Cohen's memoir and in uh, what we have seen leaked from the uh, Woodward book. And that is something that I identified back in uh, the elite slaveholders in the 1850s. And remember, even in the, the 1850s in the American South, the number of plantation owners who enslaved more than 50 people is less than 1%. I mean, it's a very small group of people. Most people who owned another human being had one or two people they owned and they tended to work alongside them. They tended to be fairly poor, but there was this elite, this, this very high status elite group of people. And by the 1850s, they're illuminating because they begin to direct society to the point that they believe not only that they should be where they are, that God has somehow made them better and has showered them with so many blessings because he sees them as better than other than human beings, but also that 
it is good for society for them to take everything. Because if they can monopolize resources, if they can make all the money, if you will, if they can take what other people create, what they're going to do is they're going to use that money to move society forward. They're going to invest in, in today's uh, language, you would say they're going to invest in new companies, in new ideas, and they're going to buy new artists. And they're going to um, you know, think new great thoughts because they're going to be able to have the time and the leisure and the money to drag society forward along with them. So it's more than simply a grift or simply stealing money. Well, of course, we have uh, learned, apparently, I haven't seen the news since early this morning, that some of the, the federal fund for the firefighters of New York who rushed into the buildings in 9-11 and rescued people, some of that money has been disappearing being skimmed off. And, you know, I, anyway, I won't speak for you. I look at that and I think, first of all, you're breaking the law because Congress uh, established that fund for the firefighters. And second of all, how dare you? But third of all, you know, you could look at that and say, really, who cares about those guys? You know, they're already sick. They're already dying. That money isn't going to really do much but prolong their, you know, sad little lives, it's much better off being used over here and and moving society forward. Now, I'm not endorsing that at all, but I'm telling you, you absolutely can find that language in the 1850s and the 1890s. And I don't think you have to scratch the surface very far to see it here. If you see in um, in uh, Cohen's book, he actually says, and this is Cohen speaking about what he observed about the president. I am not vouching for this because Cohen is an re- unreliable narrator, but he felt it was appropriate, Cohen did, to reach for the language that said that the president thinks of other people as ants. They are not that important in the scheme of things. And, you know, you look at the fact that he did not see fit to be honest with us about the dangers of coronavirus and think, how do you square that with the idea that everybody has a right to an equal access to knowledge so they can make good decisions about their lives? I have a problem seeing that, but I can see intellectually how you would get there. Two things. First of all, I think Trump was being honest when he said he wanted to avoid a panic, but he wasn't talking about people panicking. He was talking about a Wall Street crash. Uh, that's first off. Secondly, when it comes to the grift within the Trump campaign, It kind of bites them on the ass, but then again, it's part of the package. Well, does it come back to haunt you if the people don't matter? If you can say, I don't care what the law is, I don't, you know, you can go ahead and have your little congresses, but I don't really care. And there don't seem to be any repercussions for behaving in that way. Does it matter? And I think it is it is important to remember that we are looking at the rise in many places in the world of authoritarian figures who do whatever they want. MBS in Saudi Arabia, of course, Kim Jong-un in in North Korea, Recep Erdogan in Turkey, uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia. These are all multinational figures who operate outside of really any kind of restraints. And interestingly enough, when he was director of the FBI, Robert Mueller gave a, a, what is really a fascinating speech I would urge people to go look at, and you can really just Google Robert Mueller's speech FBI. And what he said is that after 9-11, that the FBI had to change its approach to crime. Because what he said is, 
we are entering a new phase because of the internet, because of the ability to transfer money easily, because of the fact that people are operating across national lines. We're entering a new phase of crime where you have people who are not bound by ideology or by religion or by ethnicity. They are simply interested in making money, in, in gathering all the goodies to themselves so that they can then go ahead and direct society in a way that pleases them. And you think about that and you think about the, the increasing overlap of the actions of, say, uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump or Erdogan when he works with Putin or against him. I mean, I'm not saying they're all in the same wavelength at all, but there is uh, perhaps a different phase of human society, world society that we're entering in, in which national boundaries matter a lot less and it's way easier to create a world for certain people that is not bound by laws that are established by large bodies of people. And that, I think, is something that we all ought to be paying attention to. Going along with that, it struck me that when all of this talk was about Russia being our enemy, I kept thinking, well, wait a second, it's not Russia, it's oligarchs, and oligarchs on some level are international. Exactly. There's a rise of international oligarchy. And I, and I will put in here, because I try and mention it as much as, as I can, because I went to school with him, never forget that there was an American journalist, Paul Klebnikov, in Moscow, who was the, the bureau chief for Forbes in the early 2000s, I believe it was 2004, who said, we got a real problem over here, guys. We got oligarchs rising. And he was murdered. There was some cover-up story for why he was murdered. But essentially, you know, Putin's goons took him out. And you know, when, when Americans think this is distant, I always like to remind people that that Paul was was a native-born American. He bore a Russian name uh, because his family had emigrated from their uh, generations before. But he really believed in democracy, and he really believed that the areas that had been overseen by the USSR for all those decades had a shot at democracy, and they could be something really great. And he was murdered for that belief. And when people think that this is all very distant, I like to point out that that we have already had at least one casualty in this war, and I don't want him to be forgotten. Heather Cox Richardson, I asked friends if they had questions for you, and one friend of mine asked me to ask you about who your mentors were, and to broaden that, what attracted you to history in the first place? Those are very different questions, and I'm going to answer them both because I think maybe the answers are, di are important to different people. My mentors have been phenomenal women from everybody. And I, and I would mention names here, but I hate to because many of them, of course, are on the East Coast and will never hear this. And I hate to throw their names out there without their permission. But, you know, women who created their own lives out of whole cloth, who decided, for example, many people notice and when I do the Facebook videos, I use a set of mugs. That was a woman, one of my first jobs was working for her. She was a potter from New York City who a look at the coast of Maine and said, why don't I get to live like that? So she put everything she owned in a truck and drove up from New York to a small town in Maine and started a pottery studio. Uh, she just retired this spring and made her life out of whole cloth. And, you know, people who 
were stuck in stultifying marriages and became experts in antique textiles and broke off and did exciting things, or people who live off the grid and have managed to create a life with their goats and their gardens. And, you know, I think the beauty of watching people create a life and not do what they're told so much as to do what they tell themselves has been absolutely inspirational for me. And I write about those people not infrequently because they they have made choices and they have made those choices come to life. But what inspired me to do history was the fact I came from this small town where we really didn't have television. I mean, technically we had it, but it was so snowy, there was no point. And I grew up around phenomenal storytellers. And they made sense of the world based on the stories that they told. And they were mesmerizing. And people say, I'm good at telling a story. I am not being modest when I say that if we were in a room of some of these people, and there are really only two of them left alive that I know now, you would not give me the time of day. I mean, I would not, I would not be in the top 10. And I'm, and I'm not being modest. These are men who, some of whom never went past grade school, but who could tell a story that would have you laughing and crying and making sense of your world. And my mother was also raised in that community. And mother always looked at uh, the history behind things. She always told stories about why things were the way they were. So when I went to college, I was interested in um, in stories. I was interested in how people made sense of the world. And I majored in history because I thought it was fascinating to have stories where you could actually verify the facts. But when I was a junior in college, it became clear to me that I had better start taking more history courses because I had as many credits in folklore and mythology as I had in history. So I got then involved in history and just by a complete fluke, tumbled on a series of uh, archives in um, upstate Maine that uh, had been untouched for a long period of time and got into them. And those people embraced me and the, the family that they belonged to embraced me. And one thing led to another. I had a fantastic advisor in David Herbert Donald, a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, and then in Bill Ganap, who was uh, a, a wonderful man, very different men both, who just kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And you know, I, I once the path was laid, I seem to have walked down it. What brought you particularly now to the era of the Civil War and Reconstruction? And also, at what point did you realize that the narrative, the history that we were all taught was so distorted? I hated school. I've always hated school. Isn't that ironic? I kept threatening to quit college and my parents kept saying, please just finish. They were older and they were like, please just finish. So I did grudgingly as a, as a college student will do. And I took a course with David Donald, Professor Donald, and it was on the Civil War. And I went to write the term paper, which was like, say, a 15 or 20 page term paper. And I wanted to just learn, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to write about. And I was knowing me, I was probably late, you know, starting it. And I went down into the, the basement of what was then known as GovDocs, government documents at Harvard. I was at Harvard at the time. And, um, and it was cold. You know, they kept it chilled because of the, the microfilms. It was all microfilm in those days because of the microfilms down there. And, and I got to tell you, there's not a lot of people who hang out at GovDocs. The people down there later became some of my dearest friends, by the way, um, in, you know, as, I, as I ended up spending many years of my life there. But I didn't know that at the time. It's my first time ever down there. 
And I started just randomly reading the Chicago Tribune and what I saw on microfilm on these old machines where you kind of had to stick your head into them and you crank through them. And I'm not a morning eater, so I had not had breakfast. And in those days, I wasn't very good about eating. I would get absorbed in things and forget to eat. I can't really do that so much anymore, but I did then. So I didn't really eat all day. I just read the newspaper, which sounds fast, like, like it's hard to do, but it actually, the Chicago Tribune at the time was four pages long and two of them was advertising. So I'm really only reading a page or two. And I read very quickly. So over the course of that day, probably about 12 hours, I read through all of the Chicago Tribune for the Civil War years. So I really kind of lived it. And I, I, I turned the crank and, and Lee surrendered. And at this point, I'm cold and I'm lightheaded because I haven't eaten all day. It's way past dinner time at this point. And I haven't eaten all day. And I turn the crank and, and Lee surrenders. And of course, I knew the story. I was in a course about it, but like I'd lived it. And I was kind of, you know, otherworldly at that point anyway. And I, and Lee surrendered. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, the war, the war's over. And I turned the crank again. And, and there was a black border and they had murdered my president. You know, I, I couldn't believe it. I, again, I knew the story, but it was like, oh my God, they killed Lincoln. After all that, they killed Lincoln. And I went home. I didn't actually take any notes for any kind of a paper. I went home and I wrote a letter to my mother and I said, I know what I want to do. I, I want to make this come alive for everybody else because I get it now. They killed my president. and. That's kind of what made me start seeing history as a potential field for me to work in. And that's actually kind of what turned the, the, that's from then by chance, I went home and I found this collection of letters and, and on and on and on. But that's why I wanted to do history. But you'll notice I just said that about the Civil War. People forget my first book was on the Civil War. It was not on Reconstruction. I didn't want to have anything to do with Reconstruction because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the way we taught it or anything. So after I finished my first book, I did the same thing. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do for another book. So I went back to the newspapers. And similarly, I actually read through the New York Times. I didn't do it in a single day, but I read through the New York Times. Same thing. It's much shorter than it sounds. And I read the New York Times from 1865 to about 1905. And what emerged was exactly what you touched on, the idea that what we had heard about in history was not what I had just read in the papers. So, for example, one of the things that jumped out at me was, I could not find in the New York Times any reference at all to Plessy v. Ferguson, except this one little line that said this case was decided. And that's in 1896. And it's what the textbooks had always told me was the overturning of the concept of desegregation after the Civil War. And that's in 1896. I couldn't find a reference to it in the New York Times, but I could find months and months and months and months of front page stories about the overturning of the Civil Rights Acts in 1875. And I thought, well, why the heck don't we have books that focus on this as being the important event instead of Plessy v. Ferguson? And that was the root of my second book, uh, The Death of Reconstruction, which says, you know, what really took Reconstruction down is something very different than we thought had. Because if you read the newspapers, there's a really clear social story, um, class story playing out here, intersecting with the race story. And that's that's really when it hit me that maybe the way to tell history was to get back into the sources, the original sources first, and see what emerges rather than taking a look at the history and seeing where I might think the weaknesses lie. Some of that, for instance, that you know, the Alamo, the people defending were the, the Alamo, as you say, 
they were on Mexican territory fighting Mexicans. Basically, they were rebels against the Mexican government. And they were certainly not exclusively Americans. They, um, it was uh, much of the force that fought at, at the Alamo were, in fact, Mexicans who were opposed to Santa Ana's government. We get this completely different history until I saw Watchmen. I didn't know the Tulsa massacre had happened. And I, you know, on Facebook, I talked to people who said they grew up in Tulsa. They didn't know what happened. Yeah, let me just throw in there about the Tulsa massacre. One of my favorite things about the Tulsa massacre is that it's the first time in American history that America is bombed from the air. It's firebombed from the air. And of course, it's by Americans. But we didn't know about it. People in Tulsa didn't know about it. It's kind of like as if there was a giant carpet put across our own history to keep us from knowing. Well, you know, the the historical profession has uh, certainly has a role to play in that. Certainly politics have a role to play in that. I will say that, again, to go back to where my last book came from, you know, I am basing it on the work of really fabulous young scholars and older scholars as well. But there's a lot of really astonishingly terrific work out there. And I hate to start mentioning names because I will forget people, but my notes are deliberately designed to drive people toward really fabulous history. So for example, I am going to mention one guy, and I believe I'll get the name right, a guy named James Rice, who wrote this teeny little book on Bacon's Rebellion, which is the the time in early Virginia when there's a, a group of sort of Western backwoods guys white and black both who march on the Eastern government to, to, to try and take it over because they're mad about the Eastern government's lack of attention to the fact that the Western settlers are increasingly sparring with and fighting with the indigenous people out there. Well, you know, but nobody knows a lot about Bacon's Rebellion. And there's this wonderful book, you know, it's a little book, but he says, you know, what's really at stake here is Indian lives. And one of the things that jumped out at me about that book was that I don't know about you guys, I had never heard that the outcome of Bacon's Rebellion, and we look at what happened in politics, one of the things that happens in Eastern Virginia and in Virginia politics is we get the dramatic hardening of racial lines and the the codification of racial slavery after that, which is what historians tend to look at. But Virginians also decimated the indigenous Virginia tribes, took over their land, and sold tens of thousands of them into slavery in the Caribbean. Well, Like, that's a story that it feels like we should know about, isn't it? You know, it it makes you wonder how many more can be uncovered at this point. Uh, It feels like we're just, you know, digging away. It's like there's an iceberg and we're only now learning what's under the surface. Well, yes, but let me just say something about that, because there, of course, are people usually on the right who complain about the fact that somehow we are changing our history, that this is somehow... I don't even know what, somehow um, dirtying our history. And I, don't, I, I truly do not understand that. I truly don't. Because to me, you look at this and, and what I see are stories of extraordinary human endurance and triumph and, and human values coming to the fore. Sure, there's an awful lot of negative stuff in our past, but isn't it exciting that there are so many voices and so many experiences and so many people doing like, you know, I, you asked me about my mentors and I said mentors that I, 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 you know, have known in my lifetime. But look at Fannie Lou Hamer, white employers and police officers, law enforcement officials essentially took everything from her right up to the edge of taking her life. 
I mean, her story's over, right? No one cares. Except no, she woke up and not woke up. She healed and she said, I have nothing left to lose. So I'm going to change the world. And she did it. One of my favorite stories in American history is Frederick Douglass, and not because of anything he is famous for, which is all very impressive, of course. He's a great writer. He's a great thinker. He's, he's any number of those. He's a great leader and all those things. The reason that I am so awed by Frederick Douglass is because he was an enslaved man who, in the scheme of enslavement, had things pretty good. You know, he had a trade. He worked on the in the docks, so he had um, he had some some uh, ability to move around. He had some autonomy. He was still enslaved, but compared to the people who were working down south in gangs and dying at horrific rates, his life was endurable. And despite that, he took the chance of being free. And what that literally meant was he, we now know from his third autobiography, he did what so many enslaved people could do if they worked in the maritime industries. And that is to borrow from a free sailor, his free papers and take them because they didn't have photographs. If you had somebody's free papers that looked somewhat like you, the description you could pass for, you could take those free papers and get on a train and go North. But the kicker is if you were discovered, you would lose everything you had. You'd be sold into the South and probably lose your life at best. Otherwise, you would be stuck in this horrific system. So when I look at Frederick Douglass, what makes him astonishing is not that he was a great orator or a great writer or that he led a great movement. What makes him astonishing is that he gathered the courage to step aboard that train. You know, that to me is the epitome of courage to, to, to risk everything you have for something better. And that right there, the idea that somehow we would want to write his experience or the experience of so many people like him out of our history suggests that we are looking for a history that is far poorer than it could be. We need to have those stories because they are the stories that are going to carry us forward into a new kind of society. You've been listening to an interview with Heather Cox Richardson, whose book is How the South Won the Civil War. If you go to Facebook, you can find Letters from an American. Where can people see the video cast? On Tuesdays and Thursdays on Facebook. At four o'clock on Tuesdays, I talk about as question I take questions about the news, the historical background of the news. And on Thursdays, I, I just talk about history, uh, where I'm finishing up a, a series on the Republican Party that was really only designed to keep people entertained during the pandemic, but I really didn't expect the pandemic was going to keep on going on so long. They are then posted to my YouTube channel. Again, where can people read Letters from an American other than Facebook? If you go to all one word, heathercoxrichardson.substack.com, you can subscribe to them. They go. You can read them on the website. You can also subscribe to them. I do send them out by email every morning. Usually, I'm trying to get earlier. They're usually out by 4 a.m. The discussions are behind a paywall, but the letters are free and they will always stay free. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.